We've been going through Leviticus 18, and last week we touched the very, very touchy subject of homosexuality. And uh, we went over kind of the biblical perspective of homosexuality, why it's wrong, uh, why the Bible considers it wrong. Um, but we also talked about, you know, homosexuality is not the only thing the Bible thinks is wrong with our sexuality. It's just one aberration, right? It's just one area in which humanity can go off of God's plan and purpose for marriage, right? And we talked about it last week, how God's plan and purpose for marriage and our sexuality is to glorify him, right? Because he is the greatest being in the universe. So what else would he ask us to glorify, right? What would be the most loving thing for God to ask us to glorify? The answer is himself, because he's the greatest, right? There's nothing better. So in our sexuality, he says he's created it for us, and it is for our pleasure, and it is for our enjoyment. It's very awesome. But ultimately, it is for his glory, right? It is for his glory. And that is why God has created boundaries for our sexuality. Um, it is because that he is unique in his diversity and in his unity, and he desires for us to exemplify that in our sexuality. And that's why heterosexual marriage can do that, right? But we talked about last year, just because you're straight and just because you're married doesn't necessarily mean that you're honoring God in your sexuality, right? Doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it. Um, but it's just, that's, that's just a piece of the pie, right? That's one piece of the pie in how you can honor God in your sexuality. So today I thought it'd be cool to go over some of the most common objections I've heard to this teaching, uh, against homosexuality, and so hopefully me and Bo could get through them quicker, <laughs> and then if you guys have ever heard one, if you've ever thought of something, or you're like, ah, I just, if this really sits difficult in your heart, and you've wondered about it, uh, you know, this is your time to ask about it, and we'll try to answer as best we can, uh, but the first objection that I've heard, so I'll just like read through them, and then we can just chat about them, is that cool? That's cool. All right, so the first very common one that I've heard and that's really gained speed in our culture today, is this one. Love is love, right? So the argument goes something like this. The most important commandment in the Bible is love, right? When Jesus was asked what's the most important commandment, and he said what? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so what the LGBTQ community would say is they would say, well, in our relationships, we are practicing love. And they said what the Bible is against is the Bible is against lustful relationships and abusive relationships. And so as long as we're engaging in a loving relationship, even if it is same sex, it is still honoring to God because God's imperative on our lives is love. How many of you guys have heard that or something like that? Okay, cool. Um, so given that objection, how would you respond, Bo? Man, why'd you have to put me on the spot? It's always going to be you because I got the question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can throw them back at me. but <laughs> Well, we have been asked this question before, um, even on podcasts that we've done with uh, friends of ours who are gay. Um, we've kind of had these conversations, and they always seem to go a little longer than, um, than uh, you would think they should. Um, first, you know, the question sounds legit, um, but you always got to go back to how we're defining love. Um, and and that's, that's always like kind of how we have handled that, that situation is what does it mean to love God? Hmm. You know, if the greatest commandment is love God, what does that really mean? Hmm. Um, is there no suffering in love, in loving God? 
is there no giving up of my own prerogative or what I want to do in, in my relationship with God? Yeah. Um, or is what we're defining love is just me doing what I desire to do with my sexuality in a, um, in a relatively safe way? Um, so there's, there's things that we all like to, we all want to and we all like to do with our sexuality that is relatively safe, meaning it's not like we're harming people um, with a lot of our sensual behaviors or, or the things that we think about in our minds or even maybe the things that we watch or even in the area of self-gratification or things like that. It's not like we're injuring people. Um, and so we always have to ask the question though, is this something, is this a loving thing? Is this the right thing to do? Is this something that, um, would honor God or is this something that glorifies God? And we have to wrestle with those, those questions. They're not easily answerable. Uh, they're, let me put it this way. They're not easily answerable if you desire something, you know, it's like to the person who doesn't, doesn't desire to eat apple pie then it's easy for him to deny eating apple pie but most people on on the planet have a have a libido they have a sexual appetite and that's most people on the planet not all people some people don't i mean it's really true we've actually counseled men and and women too that get married and they have no libido at all like, they've been married years, and you go, hey, how many times have you had sex? And they go, oh, five times. How long have you been married? Fifteen years. Like, whoa. You know, what a trip. But, but on the whole, we are human beings, and part of the human condition and our biology is one of reproduct, reproduction. So we do have chemicals in our body, and we have serotonin, and we have dopamine, and we have all these things running through us, and testosterone, and estrogen, and everything says sex, sex, sex. Even if you had no porn in the world, which remember at one point there was no porn industry in the world, right? Porn industry has only been going on in America for the past, what, 60, 70 years? You know, it started in New York, San Fernando Valley. I mean, it's certainly all over the place today. Um, but it, you know, it, it's, like, it's not like people didn't have libido before the industry, right? It's not like people didn't have a sexual appetite. They certainly did, and they had quite a bit of it, right? Just read your Bible. These guys had amazingly sexual appetite, you know? But does it mean that it's... So, so I guess my first point is that whenever you have a desire for something, there always is struggle in the resistance to it. And the easy thing to do is to be able to just say, hey, no, I'm going to redefine my terms here. If I redefine the term, then maybe I can fit this into my world, you know. And so I would start the conversation just in that way of just saying, hey, what are we, what are we defining love as? Mm -hmm. You know, because one of the things love, the Bible defines love as, is love does not seek its own. Mm -hmm. So... What does that mean when it says love does not seek its own? What is what what is it? What are we getting at there? Um, 
there's certain things that we do seek our own in. So it's not like, you know, you eat for your own sustenance. And the Bible's not saying, hey, don't eat for your own health. Don't eat for your own growth. Don't do that. That's wrong. It's not that the Bible's saying that, but there's something about love that it's trying to get us to, and that is when you truly are in love, there is a, a part of us that is willing to look at things, and the main thing that it's talking about is our selfishness. And love is always looking at that and saying, am I willing to let go? Am I willing to see things maybe God's way and not mine? And when I do see things God's way, maybe I don't like it. And maybe that's good. Maybe that's this good sign. Maybe the bad sign is when you don't, see, maybe the bad sign is when you, when you don't have the fight, right? When you just think like, oh, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Maybe that's the bad sign. But the good sign, from my perspective, is when, you, when, you're, when you're looking at it and you're going, man, I, I don't like that. You know, that's why last week I talked a little bit about that, about struggling with the tension of the word. So I would define to that person, hey, what do you, you know, love is love, but what is love? Mm. I mean, if we're going to use the term love is love, that's great, but <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, if you went up to your friends today and you said, hey, what is love? Do you think, if you went up to five friends and you asked them that, do you think they're all going to agree? Do you think they're going to give you? Like, you, you think it's all going to be the same answer? No, it's not all going to be the same answer. Some people are say, oh, love is compassion. We get that all the time. You know, love is compassion. Some people say that. And then you say, well, is love, oh, is that what love is? Is it just compassion? If it's just compassion, then why do we just call it compassion and not love? And then they go, oh, well, it's, uh, <laughs> and they start trying to figure out what it is more, right? So every, people have different understandings of what love is. Right? People thought love was running a, or driving a, or, or flying an airplane into a tower. And that was considered love to them. They were loving. It was a loving act. You know, so we have to define our term. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love how you put that, man. It's so awesome. Um, so few people think that way. I didn't think that way for many, many years. But just like going back to the idea of, you know, how do you define love like what does it mean to you i would i would be willing to bet that most people in our culture even most people in this room would define love if you were really pressed if, if someone were really to ask you it would boil down to you to be about uh just about like an emotional kind of experience meaning if i were to really press people and be like how do you know you're in love with this person like how do you know and they would be like well i do nice things for them and be like well do you do nice things for other people that you don't necessarily love They'd be like, well, yeah. And if I really pressed them, they'd be like, well, it's the way I feel, right? There's some sort of an emotion tied in there that they're like, yeah, that's how I know I'm in love with this person. I feel a particular way. Now, the issue with that is exactly what Bo's saying. If one of the main primary definitions for love in your Bible is love does not seek its own, that insinuates that in order to love someone, I have to want something and do what to that desire? die to it, right? I have to die to it. That means that love, by definition, by nature, means having desires and suppressing them sometimes, putting them to the side for the sake of someone else, right? 
And if that, if that is really true, that means sometimes denying emotionality and not following it. Do you guys get that? Right now, that's a big issue. Let me, let me just read you this passage. This is John 14, verse 15. Jesus is speaking. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. It's pretty simple, right? He says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. He doesn't say obeying what I command makes you love me. He says, if you love me, obey what I command. Do you guys understand that? Right? So when people say love is love, well, well, in what way are you loving God if you're ignoring his commands? Or to put it another way, is it possible to love God and blatantly disobey his commands? Right? And the answer is no. You could have warm feelings towards God. Right? You could have great feelings towards God, but it doesn't mean that you love him. Do you guys get that? Right? It's so surprising to me when I talk to people who are doing blatantly sinful things. And I'm not just talking about homosexuality at this point. I'm talking things that are like way over the top. Like, like they're in the middle of just like going through a really nasty divorce where they are just bla- blasting their spouse and being abusive. And they're like, I've never loved God more. I'm like, really? <laughs> You've never loved God more than when you're doing this. Do you guys get that? Right? You could have amazing feelings towards God. doesn't mean you're loving him. doesn't mean you're loving him. I could have amazing feelings towards another human being, but it doesn't mean I'm loving them either. You guys understand that? See, the, see, the issue always is see, if you take love as love, if, if, I, if, if, like, if I said, hey, what's, you know, love is love to you, love is love to you, love is love to you, and love, love is love to me, and we don't define terms, then, then what love is love to you is going to be different from what love is love to you. I might, I might love a 14-year-old girl. I'm 46-year-old. I might say, that's, that's love. love is love to me. That's what it is. She loves me, I love her. Is love is love? How about this one? Hey, you know what? I, I, I'd like to be married to five women. How about that? Love is love. I can find five women in this world. Believe me, I can find five women in this world that would love to be married to me. It's not that hard. There's women all over the world that, first of all, want to live in the United States. And they'll marry practically anybody for any reason. <laughs> so it's not, it has nothing to do with looks or anything like that. It has to do with, if you have a job, I'll marry you. <laughs> Basically, if I can be a U.S. citizen... And you got a job, and we're good. we're good. I mean, people do it all the time. So, is love is love? You see where we we're kind of going a little weird now. You see how this is getting a little odd. Or how about this one? We talked about authority last week, right? About that. Well, I don't want the authority of God, so I throw off God. I become autonomous meaning I become my own dictator, so to speak. I dictate my own things. I, I, you know, I don't even care if you love me. Love is love to me. So whatever I want from you, I'm going to manipulate you in this relationship to get what I want because love is love. See, what's, what might be hurtful, what might be harmful for you might not be what my definition of what harmful is. And so when we say things like, it's all good, you know, do, it, do what you want, man, as long as you're cool and happy. 
Those are things I remember growing up saying. You know, it's, it's called moral relativism, right? Relativistic ways of thinking. You know, and it comes from, it stems from the idea of we're not, we're not looking at God's definition of something, but instead we're looking at our own definitions of those things. So you always have to look at those arguments, the one of love and love, and you have to be able to engage it and say, hey, let's try to kind of define our terms. Yeah, yeah. And just uh, one last point on that. You know, if, if God really is the most satisfying being in the universe, and the only way, like, if you want to live in love with God, you have to be in obedience to his commands. The most loving thing that I can do for another person is to lead them where? To God and in obedience to his commandments, right? So is it loving for me to be in a relationship with someone that goes against God's commandments? Right. So, so, there, so there is a big movement today to redefine kind of what the word says, right? So some people would say, well, what Sodom and Gomorrah, what really, what really that issue was is it really had nothing to do with homosexuality. It actually, because the book of Ezekiel says that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged because of their, the way that they treated other people in um, the city, meaning they were rude to people, they, they you know, uncompassionate um, they, they grew into a very just indifferent society where they didn't care for anything. Um, and Ezekiel points that out in his, in his book, and he never mentions homosexuality. Ezekiel doesn't talk about Solomon and Gomorrah as being judged for homosexuality. So, so really, Solomon and Gomorrah, um, you know, that wasn't really the issue with homosexuality. It really, what the real issue was, was was the indifference that they had towards being compassionate with other people just in general. Right, right. And that's kind of like a main thrust of the argument, right? So, so that's, that's one piece of it, like what Bo's saying right there. But the main thrust of this argument is basically this. The Bible is silent on this issue, right? That's, that's kind of the objection, is the Bible really doesn't talk about this. There is no command for us, and they'll pull out things. So Christians will predominantly pull out things like, "Well, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? What about this? What about that?" And then people will go through and they'll say, "These don't matter, right?" So the Sodom and Gomorrah issue—I've never personally used that as a reason or a justification for thinking that homosexuality is wrong, um, because I, I, I do think that there is a strong argument that could be made for the idea that God predominantly judged them. I, I think that it would be really difficult to say that God didn't judge them at all for their homosexual issues. Um, but I think you could make a very strong argument that that wasn't the main issue with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When you, have a, when you have a city that's so wicked that two strangers can walk in and all the men of the city come to a dude's house to rape those two guys— that's a pretty wicked city, man. Like, that's a city that's gone off the rails, you know? They're not just homosexuals. That's it like, makes Las like, Vegas look quite pure. Yeah, <laughs> it makes Las Vegas look way pure, yeah. right? If that's, Las- if that's what's going on in that city on a regular basis. So, um, yeah, I would, I would, you know, give a little leeway on that. But the, the main one that I would use is, like, obviously we're going through Leviticus 18. I'd say, well, Leviticus 18 has this commandment from God. And they would say, well, you know, we don't follow a lot of, Leviticus anymore, right? We don't, we eat shellfish, you know, we don't follow the Sabbath. We don't do this, right? It's arbitrary, right? The law is arbitrary. It's arbitrary for you. You treat it arbitrary in some areas. I treat it arbitrary in some other areas. So don't tell me that you follow 
all of the law. And, and uh, you know, I've gone over this with you guys before, but the Bible itself tells you what parts of the law we no longer have to observe as Christians. Does that make sense? So the parts that the Bible says don't observe them anymore, I don't observe them anymore. So the Bible says I don't need to keep the Sabbath anymore, so I don't keep the Sabbath anymore. The Bible says I don't need to keep the kosher laws anymore, I don't keep the kosher laws anymore, right? But the Bible says that I need to still follow thou shall not murder, so guess what? I don't murder, you know, like, I, you know, does that make sense, right? I follow the areas that the Bible still says I need to follow. One of the areas that the Bible says I still need to follow is Leviticus 18 in regards to my sexuality, right? Not only do we have an affirmation of Leviticus 18 from the mouth of Jesus when he condemns sexual immorality, right? He says you shouldn't do sexual immorality. He mentions it in two parts, one in Matthew 19 Another time when he's talking about out of, uh, it's not what goes into someone that makes them defiled, but Mark what comes seven. out of them. Yeah, what was that, Mark 7? Mark 7. Mark 7, right? Not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out, for out of man comes, and one of the words he uses is sexual immorality, which is Leviticus 18. Um, but also in Romans 1, Paul very clearly uh, shows that homosexuality is wrong. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a list of sins, and two of the words that he uses are very, very strong Greek words that there's really no way around them. They're definitely referencing homosexuality, right? So when you when you compile the evidence together, it's very clear that the Bible is against it. And, and here's the thing. The people that, that make these arguments, they're not really interested in being submitted to the Bible, right? They're, they're, they're interested in, like Bo said, doing their desires, but being justified before God in doing them. Do you guys get that? And, I, and, and, to, be, and, and to be really fair um, in a lot of ways, I think we all, in a sense, do that. Mm. Um, you know, so it's, it's not just people who struggle with homosexual tendencies. It's just people in general, we tend to, all of us tend to come to the Bible and we tend to go, hey, there's certain things that are much easier to bear uh, under, you know, and there's other things that just are very difficult for us to do. Um, so it, it's hard to um, just just put that in a way of where, you know, hey, you know, there's people in the homosexual community that look to the Bible and just go, hey, we just don't want to submit to it. Hey, I don't want to submit to it. You know, there's a part of my nature that certainly doesn't want to submit to the Bible. And, and then there's that bringing into subjection, meaning putting yourself, like, underneath God and, and those type of things. And some things you do better than others. And homosexuality, we don't want to undermine that, that there is a component to this thing uh, chemically and things that go on in our bodies that, that fight against us in every way as well. Um, your body is it's fearfully and wonderfully made the Bible tells us, but it's also, we live in a fallen world, and it also it has chemicals in it, and it has um, all these things that are, are go, and your brain is, is impacted by these things. And, 
And so I don't want to undermine the idea that someone feels like uh, or knows that they're homosexual from the, fi- from the time they're five years old or something like that. No, I, I believe that that can certainly be true. That, that a person can know from the time they were a kid that they have no attraction to the same sex. And they have a physical, sexual attraction to the opposite sex. And I would never want to uh, poo-poo that and just be like, no, come on, man, <laughs> just, just like chicks. You know? And he's like, oh, man, I've tried. You know? And you're like, no, you're not trying hard <laughs> enough. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's hard. To, you can't do that, right? There's a, there, and there's studies and there's so much uh, going on today in today's world of working with people and kids and, and as they grow up and things like that, that certainly have a lot of validity that people, uh, you know, from an early childhood develop things. And, man, they, they it, it, it's not just so simple as bringing them to a counselor and saying, hey, homosexuality is wrong. And they go, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I'm going to go the other way. You know, that kind of thing. It is, it is there is a strong physiological thing going on you know so it's very difficult for someone you know for you know i i I just hate the idea of being uncompassionate to the point where we say to people who are christians and who are in homosexual relationships just to say to them like okay you're in sin and and you need to stop and and yeah that might be the short answer um, but there's a lot more to the conversation than that. There has to be much more to the conversation than just that. Because th- you can say that about any, uh, so many of us in the Christian life. You can say to us, well, why do you do what you do? Why, do you, why are you prejudiced? I can't tell you how racist the American church is. If you don't know that, then you just have not paid much attention but the amount of racism is huge. And, it, you know, but people don't go into churches today and, and, you know, they don't talk about those things. They don't, you know, there's certain sins that are always accepted within the body of Christ. And then there's other ones that are certainly demonized and they are very much polarizing. And, um, and people definitely go at. Um, so, you know, I just think that we need to, um, you know, side with Christ in his compassion on people. He, he held to the truth, you know, so we, we need to hold to the truth. And, and, you know, it's not my truth. It's, uh, you know, I don't say this. And you have to let people know when you're in conversations with them that, hey, it's not, I'm not saying this. This isn't what I'm saying. This, I'm just telling you how I'm understanding the Bible and what the Bible's saying. That's what I'm telling you. You know, that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, you know, so hopefully that makes some sense. Yeah, so you're touching on the final three objections I wrote down. Okay, fine. Um, so there, I, I'm going to put a couple of them in one, though, and we'll, we'll hit each one, though, individually. Yep. Um, and these are the kind of like the more emotionally charged objections that you're going to hear um, or that you might even think about in your own head, no matter where you're at. Um, so the first objection is depression. Um, meaning that when you have a stance that homosexuality is sinful, it could lead to the depression and suicide of many, many people who do struggle in this way Mm. and do not feel accepted. 
The second is oppression, meaning that when you say that homosexuality is wrong, it leads to people who aren't homosexual to oppress people who are. Again, true. The third one is repression, meaning if you tell someone who struggles with homosexuality it's wrong, they can try to repress those tendencies, which whenever you try to repress something, it usually leads to mental schisms and a lot of different problems like depression, anxiety, things like that. Um, and, and it never really fully works. So um, that gets into the idea of if they really are this way and they can't change, it really is harmful for me to tell them you ought to change when they don't have the ability to do so, right? So those are the, the final three objections that we're getting into. So let's start with depression. This idea of if you say to somebody homosexuality is wrong, it could lead to a lot of depression and even suicidal tendencies in their life as a result of feeling rejected by others. Um, how, what would you say to that? Well, first I'd say that's such a bummer. Man, that's that's just such a drag. The way that's put makes me kind of sad. I don't know about you guys. Um, because, um, you know, whenever you put things in negatives uh, in, in a person's life, um, no matter what it is, whether it's homosexuality or anything, it always can lead to depression, right? So when, you know, if, when my parents, you know, were were on me and always saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, um, even the Bible talks about how we have a law in us that wants to rebel against those commands. Whenever someone gives us a command, we want to rebel against it. And then, of course, that led me to a place of wanting to rebel and, and get away from those people. Um, and so I don't like the methodology of, um, you know, saying don't. That's why I love Jesus, because he's always talking about, you know, him and coming to him and making things really simple about coming to Christ and then having Christ do a work in your life. Um, and so, you know, if you deal with depression or you're struggling with, you know, whatever it is, it can be sexual identity or, or whatever things that you go through, you know, you know, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. And so you're, you're supposed to take your, your thoughts and your, your, your life and you take it to God. And, and, and then God promises to work on your heart. See, it's not, I, I, can't, I can't do nothing for you. Um, and I think you have to come at conversations like that. I think if you come at conversations with people on, on these issues and you think you can actually help someone, that you, your answers are going to be the fix, then I think you're wrong. You're, you're, you're totally on the wrong track. You have to be able to, your job is to point people to the one who can help people in their life. And so your job is to just simply not not throw out the negative statement your job is to lead them to god and have conversations about god with them hey what do you think about god what do you think god's like how do we know what god's like you know those type of things you know great discussions those are good discussions they're positive discussions like i had this morning with the hockey players you know what do you guys think of god what you know you know i read them a passage and, and then discuss it and they're all over the place you know they have so many different ideas and i don't go man god doesn't like that one god doesn't like that thought no he doesn't believe in that no, that's wrong. You, do you understand? If you come at it from a negative, what I'm saying is that I got the answers. Instead, I want God to give them the answers. 
And, and, and that's going to come through special revelation. Revelation changes people. See, that's what changes people, is revelation. When people have a revelation of God, something happens in them. And they go, whoa! I got a V8, man. Like, you know, something hit me. You know? But if they don't have a revelation and they just, and you, and you just are like an authority in someone's life and you just say, don't do this, they, they might not do it for a certain period of time, but they do it out of what motivation? Fear, right? Whatever it is. They don't want to disappoint you. But it's not, it's not a revelation. See, a revelation brings conviction. When you have a personal revelation, it brings a personal conviction. And so to me, the way Peter put that question it makes me bummed because I think that's probably really common. Um, and that's why when I'm talking to anybody, I'm not like, oh, man, they're homosexual. I'm going to tell them it's wrong, you know, um, that kind of thing. No, I'm going to talk to them about, I'm going to want to steer the conversation towards positive things, move in that direction. Yeah, where, you know, religion will always bring depression. Religion will always bring Amen, depression. Amen, dude. Religion right. sucks. Right? So, you know, Holy I've never really... Moly personally struggled with homosexual tendencies but just my own personal struggles with pornography and sexual issues that i've let you guys know about um led to massive amounts of depression when i was a teenager because here i was trying it's not like i wasn't trying you know it's not like i wasn't trying to be pure i was trying i was just failing right and so when you have a standard where people are like you need to do this it doesn't matter what it is whether it is homosexuality or whether it is sexual purity or whatever. If people say you need to meet this standard and you're not meeting it, what else would you feel like but a failure, right? And so I just felt like a failure all the time. And I felt like I was the only one because I would go to church and all I would hear from people is don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And the insinuation is that everybody in church is doing those things except for me. Right, so of course I felt depressed. Of course I felt bummed. And Yeah, if you go up to your parents and you say to your parents like, hey, I struggle with sexual identity or whatever identity, and your parents look at you like you're nuts, right? They look at you kind of like, oh my gosh, what a crappy answer from a parent, right? What a horrible answer. Why can't that parent go, you know what? Man, I struggle with stuff too. Thanks for coming to me. You struggle with something. I struggle with something, too, that I can't seem to stop. Man, I am a pompous, prideful, prejudiced, not going to say other words. And, man, I can't stop. I try to not be that way, but I am just, boom, I am that way. And so, son, daughter, man, we need to pray together. We're united. We both need help. Whoa, right? Much different, right? Because what that kid feels now is they don't feel what? Like, I'm a freak. Like, I'm weird. But when it, right when a parent looks at that kid, and from whatever moment, 10 years old, 8 years old, 12 years old, that kid can read the parent. Kids are good like that. Kids are, we're real perceptive as we grow, and we all know that. We, we see and we look at everything, and we're always observing how people, what their faces are like, and, and how they're viewing us. And their rejection comes not just in speech, but it comes in gesture. You know, how people 
go about themselves. Someone can hug you because they really love you and they're compassionate for you and they go, man, I'm with you. And pe- or people could hug you like, you need my help. Does that make sense? They're hugging you, but you can sense like kind of the vibe of the hug, you know, of kind of what they're thinking. And it's no fun to be around people that you, you, they look at you and they think you're, something's wrong, like something's init- like wrong in you. And, and they don't see something's wrong in them. And so you see the issue there? So we have to, we have to, we have to bridge that gap. Yeah, and uh, we'll talk about this more when we get into oppression, but the, the way that we bridge the gap is, like Bo said, is understanding our equality as sinners before a holy and righteous God. Right? Once we understand our equality as sinners, it helps people to talk to each other on the same level as opposed to the oppression and the, uh, the judgment that usually comes out in Christian circles. But for me, you know, I've had many suicidal thoughts as a teenager. I've wanted to kill myself tons of times, and I've shared this with you guys as well. One of the reasons why I joined the Marines was because I wanted to die in an honorable way. Meaning one of the only reasons why I didn't take my own life as a teenager is because I didn't want to die and have my family discover my body. You know, I was like, that, that would suck. So I'm like, okay, but if I join the military... I could die in an honorable way, in a way that my parents would be proud of me. And that's, it's like really sick to think about it, but it was almost like a premeditated like suicide that I was doing. And uh, so, yeah, I've been there. Like, I understand what that's about and where it came from for me was this religiosity of feeling like so inadequate and like I couldn't measure up to anyone's standards, not my parents and definitely not God's, uh, that, you know, taking my own life seemed like a pretty good idea. And also for me, like, I've I've prayed like no joke. I've come into this church and I've sat in the in the chairs and just prayed and been like, God, I don't even want to be saved anymore because I just can't deal with the the conviction anymore. Like I feel like junk all the time. I feel like I can't live up to what you want me to do. I can't pay you back with the life that I'm living. So just leave me so I could be at least partially happy in my sin. Like I've no joke prayed that in this church. And all of it has come, and I hope you guys see this, all of it's come from a misunderstanding of God. And what happened to me, what changed my life was, uh, you know, I took that course, Setting Captives Free, and the first two lessons, I'll never forget them because they really did. They opened my eyes. They changed my life completely. They put me on a totally different trajectory, um, and they're the reason why I'm, I'm here, is the first lesson was everything to the glory of God. And I thought, like, like Bo was saying, everything I'm doing was just fear-based. Does that make sense? I was never thinking about God's glory or honoring him. I was just thinking fear-based. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And the second half of that lesson was the idea of God wants to glorify himself in your life, and he's the only one that can glorify himself. So if you're going to be set free from sin, it's not going to be you doing it for God. It's going to be God doing it through you. Does that make sense? The second lesson was God is better than right and that that this lesson like really opened my eyes because all my life i was just like i was defining success and failure based on what i was or wasn't doing you guys understand that so if i'm reading my bible if i'm doing this i'm doing all the religious things i'm successful but if i'm sinning i'm a failure right that's how i was defining success and failure but then that lesson opened me up to understanding well what's real success nearness to god and intimacy with him right what's real failure distance from god right? 
And so I started to realize that like, man, my, my pursuit, I've been doing it all wrong. I've been running away from sin, but I need to be running towards God. I need to be pursuing him and understanding that he's better. I love the song that we just sang is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You guys heard that, right? Right. That's, that's from the Bible. It's from Romans two. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Repentance is just a fancy word to say change. If you want to change, it's not through the fear of God. The fear of God can't change you. Right? That's what the whole Old Testament is about. Right? The Israelites had plenty of reason to fear God and it didn't change them. It wasn't until we get to the New Testament that real change of the heart is possible through what? The love of God and the mercy of God and the and the the glory of God, right? That's what changes the human soul. So when I started to understand that and I started to pursue God in this way, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, every single time I fail in this way or I think this way or I do these things, I'm a failure. It was like, if I do those things, that sucks because I want to honor God. But ultimately I coupled that with, I know I'm accepted and I know I'm loved and I want to pursue God better. And that's why I don't want to do these things anymore. And that like changed me and my depression, I still struggle with depression to this day right? I share that with you guys. I still struggle with it to this day, but it's no longer because of this, right? It's no longer because I feel shamed by God or hated by God, right? That was the original reasons. Now it's more of just, it's kind of part of my nature, but you know, it's, it's not because of that. The other thing I want to add on to that is unfortunately in our culture, and it's something that I really wish the LGBTQ community would not do. They have so associated this behavior with identity meaning it's not it's no longer something that someone does it's something that you are does that make sense right so i don't usually go up to people and and i don't join organizations for being straight does that make sense i just don't do that right because i don't really consider that my identity i don't consider that who i am it's a part of who i am but it's not a main facet of who i am Right? If you consider something a main facet of who you are and this is what defines you and someone tells you that's wrong, what have they actually said? They haven't said you're doing something wrong. They're saying what? You are wrong. You are wrong. right? And that's how it's being understood at that moment where that's, that behavior is so associated with the identity of that person that when someone condemns the behavior, the person feels condemned. But thing is, is... Like how we how we help someone out in that as Christians or from my perspective of the Bible and believe me my perspective is only a 33 year perspective 34 years so um, as long as I've been a Christian but um, so it's not that long really you know there's much smarter people Um, but from my understanding of, of the Bible my job how can I help someone see an identity in God. You know, I can say to them, hey, your identity's in God. Hey, your identity's in God. You've been made in the image of your maker. Your identity's in God. I could tell them that forever. You know, and they're just going to go, uh-huh, okay, I get it. They need to have a revelation of it. They have to have a conviction of it themselves. They have to have personal conviction of it. I love certain sexual sins. I think they're awesome. In my flesh, I love them. But I have a conviction and a revelation that they're wrong, that they're sin. And it's not going to glorify God nor help out in my life. So I fight against those things. Does that make sense? But I have to, you have to have a conviction of it. I can't have anybody, 
it doesn't matter what this guy says or what Pastor Scott says. They can tell me all whatever they want to tell me about those issues. And I can just go, yeah, okay, great, thank you, yep, okay, uh-huh, got it, got your perspective, your Bible knowledge on it, great. But if I don't have a personal conviction on it myself, right? So whenever we struggle with something, we wrestle with, we wrestle with the validity of a conviction. Sometimes that can be true. Meaning you can wrestle with, is this really wrong? Haven't you ever wrestled with something like that? Is this really wrong? You know? And that's because you, you're, you maybe have had a revelation before. You maybe have had a knowledge of it. Like, whoa, that's wrong. But then, then you start doubting it or you start wondering, is it really wrong? Does, does that make sense? You start kind of questioning those things. So, um, and I, I don't want to poo-poo that either because that happens in all of our lives too where we have had special, I've had many special revelations. Does that mean that the struggle is easy? No, 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 no. Sometimes the more revelation you get, it means the struggle is what? Worse. Because you have more enlightenment to something. And when you are more enlightened to something, sometimes you can see it even clearer. And so now now the struggle is even more greater. So it's not like you go on in the Christian life and then all of a sudden things get easier and you go, oh, I'm getting better. That's how we always see it, right? Things are, oh, I'm getting better. I've been a Christian now longer. It's greater. No, the longer you're a Christian, or I've in my life, the longer you're a Christian, the more light you get from your studies and from your understanding and your prayer time and your meditation time. And the more light you get, the more you go, holy moly, I am undone. I am more undone than I ever thought I was undone. I am more sick than I ever thought I was sick. I thought I was relatively sick when I first gave my life to Jesus and I needed him. I I am more sick today than I was then, I realize. Does that make sense? So I can only figure that at the moment that I'm going to die is when I'm realizing utterly what this body of yuck is all about. I'm going to really realize just what a, how sick I am. You know how I'll know that? Because I'm dying. That's how I'll know just how sick I am. See, right now I feel relatively what? Good. Relatively healthy as a 46-year-old, right? But at the moment your body really starts dying, you start really start realizing just how sick you really are. Not just physically, but I think in every way. You start realizing just how flawed you are in every capacity, Mm. you know? And so the only hope at the moment of death, you're stripped now of all your, all your stamina because your body no longer has it. It's dying, so now you're stripped of it all, and all you have left is what? Faith. That's all you got at the moment of death. And now God becomes the biggest thing in the world. Isn't that cool? At the moment, you're weak. You're weakest. Who becomes the biggest God becomes the biggest, right? Because you have no more oomph to fight against. Isn't that crazy? It's a little heavy, but... So the next one, uh, we'll just finish up these last two very quickly. The next one I said is... All right, buddy. Thanks again for your help. Uh, But anyway, the the last two, as I said, it leads to oppression and repression. So... um, when I say it leads to oppression is I mean that whenever there's a law, and again, this isn't just for homosexuality, it's for everything in the church. Whenever there's a law that says you shouldn't do this, the people who aren't doing it will always feel superior. Do you guys understand that? 
people aren't doing it will always feel superior. And when you feel superior to someone else, when you feel better than someone else, it's really easy to judge and oppress that person. And that's where it comes from. That's why the church, it should be the most welcoming, should be the most loving place, but it tends to be some of the most judgmental and oppressive places on the planet. Where that comes from is it comes from our pride. So put it another way, the law is not the problem. The problem is the condition of the human heart and the pride and arrogance that's in it, right? So when I hear thou shall not do this and that and I don't do this and that, I automatically feel better about myself and I automatically feel superior to people who do those things. So that's where it comes from. So in the church, this is why a lot of people in the church beat up on this issue. They beat up on this issue because the percentage of people who have homosexual tendencies is low. The vast majority of the people uh, in this country do not have those tendencies. That's, just, that's statistically true. So that means that in the church, if I'm going to rail against homosexuality, the majority of people in the church would be like, yeah, whew, I don't do those things. I feel pretty good. Right? I feel pretty awesome. And it makes it easier for them to then, if they find out that someone that they know has those issues, to be like, you really, man, that's terrible. I can't believe you do that. And just really, really rail on them for doing these things. So it does lead to oppression. You're right. It does lead to oppression. And I don't like that. I don't like the fact that it leads to oppression. But understand what the source of that is. The source is not the law, right? The answer to, to getting rid of oppression is not get rid of the law. Right? The answer to getting rid of oppression is get rid of pride, right? get rid of arrogance. Right? That's, the, that's the root of the issue whenever oppression occurs. Right? To get rid of the law and think that that's the solution, guess what happens? There's still oppression. Right? Our society still has oppression. You know who the, the biggest oppressors in our society are today? They're people who pride themselves on tolerance. Isn't that weird? Right, if, you look at, if you look at our society, you look at the people who are shouting the loudest and condemning the most, it's the people who pride themselves on being the most tolerant. Right, if you don't believe me, go onto your college campus and say that something is wrong. Right, Really condemn something. Right, Take a stance on just like abortion. Take a stance on homosexuality. Take a stance on illegal immigration and see just how quickly, man, people come at you in some of the most oppressive, horrible ways you could ever imagine, right? So whatever we pride ourselves on, that's, the, that's what we're going to condemn people for. You guys get that? Right? That's the issue. Getting rid of the law is not the answer. You get rid of the law, then you're just going to hate people who have the law, right? So there's still going to be oppression. It just, it just shifts what the oppression's about. If I want to be a person, if you guys want to be people who are not oppressive to other people, Look at the arrogance of your own heart. Here's a real simple example. Like maybe you're not racist. Maybe you don't have like great oppression. But just think about the people that you talk crap about. Right? Think about any time you slander or gossip about someone else. You know where that comes from? The only way you could gossip about someone else is if you feel superior to them. You can't gossip about someone if you really believe that you're on the same level. I can't be like, man, this guy sucks and he's the worst. He's better than me, but man, he's really terrible, right? I can't say that. The only way I could say that is if I really believe that you're worse than me. Then I can rail about you. That's where oppression comes from. So that's the issue. That's what needs to be addressed. The final one is repression. Where does repression come from? Well, it's a misunderstanding of the Christian dynamic, right? So repression is damaging, 
It is. That's a fact. Anything that you try to repress, whether it's an emotional state or whether it's a physical state, if you try to repress something, it will always damage you, right? But what Christianity, what Christ is teaching us, he never teaches us repression. Repression is a denial, okay? So let me use a simple example of repression that pretty much all of us do, right? So if I'm really sad, if like something sad happened to me today and one of you guys come up to me and say, hey man, you're looking kind of down. I'm like, oh, I'm not down. I'm just tired. You know, I'm just out of it. You know, that's repression. I'm lying. And usually the reason why I'm saying it so forcefully is because the person I'm trying to convince the most is myself. I don't want to believe I'm sad because I don't want to deal with that emotion. So I put it to the side and I say, no, I'm not feeling that. That's not true. I don't want to feel that. Right. And I put it to the side. That's repression. Fighting, engaging with sinful activity means that you have to first acknowledge that it exists and then you have to engage with it, right? So the difference is, is like, if I'm sad and I don't want to be sad, you coming up to me and saying like, hey man, you're looking kind of down. You're like, you know, that's because I am down, right? I don't want to be down, but I am. I'm really sad. I'm really depressed. I'm really bummed right now. You know, can you pray for me? Can you help me? Can you encourage me? See, that's me trying to get out of my depressed state by first what? acknowledging that it's there. I have to first acknowledge that it's there. So we're not encouraging people to repress homosexual tendencies. If you have homosexual tendencies, I don't want you to repress them. Meaning I don't want you to be like, I'm not going to talk about them and they're not there. And I'm just going to like the opposite sex. I'm going to force myself into the right way of thinking. That's not going to work. You have to acknowledge it's there. You have to acknowledge, you know what? I want to do these things. I want to do them. And you acknowledge them before God and you say, God, this is what I want to do. Naturally, this is what I want to do. But I believe that your Holy Spirit's in me and I believe that you can start changing me. That doesn't mean, by the way, that God will take away those tendencies. There are some Christians who go the rest of their life and they never receive right attractions. Do you guys understand that? They never receive sexual attraction for the opposite sex. They never get that. Some do. Right? There are some amazing testimonies of Christians who give their life to God and they, he gives them right attractions and they are married now right? and they have kids and it's awesome. But some never do. And when it never happens, they go, you know what? In Matthew, Jesus says that some people are celibate for the sake of the kingdom. So I'm going to be celibate for the sake of the kingdom. Right? I'm going to be single for the sake of Christ and I'm going to go after him. Right? That's going to happen to some people. This is a fact. It's not always going to go that way. For me, I've been praying about my sexual lust issues for, what, 15 years. They haven't gone away yet. I kind of hope they do. That'd be great if God gave me that gift, but they just haven't gone away yet. I have to combat them. I have desires to go away from God's plan for my sexuality, and I have to fight them. I keep praying for God to get rid of them, but he hasn't done it yet. He has chosen to leave this in my life so that I might glorify him through combating my sin. And that's okay. Okay? Some of you, like I said, if you have homosexual tendencies in your life, you might pray about it for the rest of your life. They may never go away. But it doesn't make God any lesser, right? Because another objection that people say is like, how are you going to say that someone has to live their whole life single? That's so evil. That's so cruel. It's like, well, it's not. If God's the greatest pleasure and our sexuality is meant to glorify him, well, then if you're single for the rest of, the li- of your life, you're still glorifying God in your sexuality. It may not be the way you want to glorify God in your sexuality, but it's the way that God has called you to glorify him in your sexuality. 
For me, I glorify God in my sexuality with my wife, right? But if she died tomorrow, then I would go back to glorifying God in my celibacy. You guys get that? Right? That's how it works. We're always glorifying God in our sexuality. So don't repress. You have to acknowledge that something is there and you have to combat it in a right and proper way. And hopefully, hopefully, especially in this group, we've cultivated a place where you guys could be honest about your struggles, right? That you guys, that people here would feel comfortable if you guys struggle with pornography, if you struggle with uh, same-sex attraction, if you start, whatever you struggle with, that you'd feel the comfortability to be like, you know what, I got issues with that. And that the, the people in this group would be like, you know what, I got issues in other areas, man, let, let's fight this thing, let's honor God, let's go after him together, right? That's what I'd hope um, happens in this group for sure. But anyway, uh, we've gone a little bit over.